0: We are back. Um, we, we like to, you know, address the passing of certain notable people that are worthy of, of mention. And to close the show with that, I have to admit, maybe a bit of a downer. So let's, let's go examine what, uh, you know, what we find in recent obituary columns now so that we may perhaps close on a happier note uh, when it comes near six o'clock. James Duhan passed away last month. He, of course, was the icon known as Scotty in the original Star Trek. I was surprised to read in his, uh, in his obituary that he was a skilled mimic. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't really Scottish. He had 350 television programs and 3,500 radio shows to his credit when he auditioned for this upcoming uh, sci-fi TV program in 1965. Dohan reported that uh, for producer Gene Roddenberry, he did eight different accents for him and he asked me which one I liked the most. Duhan said, well, if you want an engineer, he better be a Scotsman, because in my experience, all the world's best in engineers have been Scottish. <music> Duhan was, in fact, Canadian. Born in Vancouver, the son of an alcoholic dentist who made life miserable for his wife and children, Duhan fled to the Canadian Army at age 19 and landed on Juneau Beach. On D-Day, he was machine-gunned and took six hits, one of which took off his middle right finger, took four bullets in the leg and one in the chest. The chest bullet was stopped by a cigarette case. He later enrolled in a Toronto drama class and won a two-year scholarship to New York's famed Neighborhood Playhouse, where fellow students included Leslie Nielsen, Tony Randall, and Richard Boone. The Los Angeles Times noted that, like all of his castmates, Doohan found himself typecast by Star Trek, but rather than chafing at uh, being forever viewed as Scotty, Doohan seemed to relish the role and uh, made what he said was a fabulous living simply by appearing at fan conventions. James Doohan delighted whenever fans called out to him, beam me up Scotty, but it was noted in the obituary that that line was never actually uttered in the show. I didn't know that. We would note also the passing of Myron Florin, accordion player, who was a, a, a mainstay of the old Lawrence Welk television program. I remember so well as a child watching Lawrence Welk. And, uh, you know, Myron Florin, he was, he was pretty good on the accordion, if, uh, you, know, if, if you like that instrument. And who doesn't? As uh, I was sitting in front of the TV uh, back in the 60s in PJs over at at my grandparents' house, I would note that we were not consuming frozen TV dinners. They were roundly scorned by, (laughs) I think, everyone in the United States. However, we should note the passing last month of Jerry Thomas, the man who in 1952 invented the frozen TV dinner. This apparently came about when the C.A. Swanson & Sons found itself stuck with 520,000 pounds of leftover frozen Thanksgiving turkeys. It was Jerry Thomas that apparently thought uh, got the idea. Having just visited Pan Am's food kitchen and noticed that the aluminum strato plates the airline used to heat its in-flight meals might be something that could be utilized uh, for the home consumer as well. Thomas asked for a sample, and during the flight home, he sketched out a prototype food tray divided into three compartments. And the rest, of course, is history. Since we're doing a run of obituaries, let's note the passing of Melita Norwood, someone I'd never heard of, but I noted in the July 2nd issue of The Economist. She was one of the Soviet Union's top spies in Britain. From 1937 to 1972, she was unmasked by a defector at the age of Eighty-seven. after which the British authorities elected to do nothing. They didn't want to be seen as being unkind to little old ladies. Interestingly, Ms. Mrs. Norwood was a proud holder of the Order of the Red Banner, bestowed by the Soviet government, and even received a KGB pension of 20 pounds a month. The Economist noted that she died at age 93 as she had lived, an enthusiastic communist with only the mildest reservations about the Soviet Union's blood-drenched history. She, quote, loved Lenin, unquote, but conceded that Stalin, old Joe to her, was not 100%. Apparently during the Cold War, Melita Norwood was a secretary at the British Non-Ferrous Metals Research Association where her efforts helped ensure that most of Britain's nuclear secrets went straight to Moscow, enabling the Soviet Union to build an atomic bomb earlier, perhaps by two years, than it would have otherwise managed. little uh, sidebar item I thought of interest here that apparently... Um, Norwood's controllers saw her as very important, and at one point they had too few intelligence officers in Britain to handle all their spies, so they dumped the famous Kim Philby and kept contacts with Norwood. The Economist sort of decried the fact that although British officialdom was still trying to hunt down surviving Nazi war criminals, noting that in June the Home Office passed the police details of 200 suspects, uh, who were basically Ukrainian soldiers allowed to come to Britain after the war, um, you know, who might be suspect of, of, of Nazi war crimes, and a list of uh, 75 guards from the Auschwitz uh, death camp in, in, in Poland, uh, still may be alive in Britain. These people are still being hunted, whereas Miss Norwood here uh, got a pass. They editorialized that few would argue that w- collaborators with Nazi genocide should not sleep easily at night, but it does seem odd that even the most enthusiastic accomplice of Europe's other totalitarian empire should face not even the slightest official displeasure. I thought I would got away with it, said Norwood when reporters first came to her door, and the economist noted, uh, well, she had. In our final look at the obituary columns, I would note to the following. This isn't exactly an obituary, but it's from the Sunday, August 14th, Sacramento Bee. article by uh, Ely Portillo for Night Ridder Newspapers noted that next time you're stuck in a checkout line, you might want to blame Clarence Saunders. Saunders was a grocery wholesaler in Memphis, Tennessee, who invented and patented what he called self-serving stores in 1917. He made millions of dollars on what came to be called supermarkets. Saunders went from rags to riches and uh, halfway back again. Yeah, he was one of the 20th century's most influential retailers in terms of this concept he developed, and yet, till I saw this article, I'd never heard of the guy. But to Eli Portillo, notes in the article that Washington's newest museum, which is the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office Museum in Alexandria, Virginia, tells Saunders' story along with those of other people who have reinvented uh, American life. We don't really think about this, but until Saunders came along, Americans, like people everywhere else in the world, bought their wares by telling clerks what they wanted. The clerks filled the orders and uh, from stocks behind the counter, and you were given uh, what you wanted. Saunders uh, filed a patent, number 1242872, which changed all that. It called for quote, distributing the merchandise of a store in such a manner that goods may be selected and taken by the customers themselves while making a circuitous path through the store, unquote. The translation, of course, is give the customers shopping baskets and make them pick up their own goods. This would cut the staff down to a few cashiers and uh, use the savings to charge less. Saunders then opened the Piggly Wiggly stores in the South. When he was asked later why he chose such an odd name, he replied, so people will ask that very question. By 1923, there were 1,268 Piggly Wigglies, mainly in the South. We're hoping to hear from our good friend, uh, Dr. Andy Jones, about, uh, about now, but it looks as though um, we'll have to put that off till next week's show. I was keen to get some input from Dr. Andy, who, of course, does a show titled Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour every Wednesdays here on KDVS. Uh, Dr. Andy's quite uh, the computer aficionado, and I wanted to tell him and tell you about something that happened to me last week that I think is uh, worthy of comment. It so happens that I have a Mac. It so happens that I am a subscriber to the SureWest Internet provider, their fiber optic system system. uh, was uh, was touted to me by many as a big advancement, something I might want to have. But if you, dear listener, uh, find yourself in that combination of having Surewest be your provider and owning a Mac, be advised of the following. If you have a glitch in your email and technical support, walks you through the fix, and at some point they suggest that you basically, uh, take the account off, log it off, and log it back on again, uh, you're liable to lose all of your old email, such as I did a few days ago. I lost everything in my email box from February to August 4th. This is a bit of a problem. Hopefully not a devastating problem, but, uh, You know, it's hard to know who to blame, Uh, me for (laughs) believing uh, that the tech knew what he was doing when he made what seemed to me to be a boneheaded suggestion of uh, taking my account off and putting it back on. But it turns out that if you do that with uh, Microsoft products, everything is retained, things are fine. But Apple decided to design their system a little bit differently. If you do it with them, you lose everything. That's what happened to me. So anyway, on next week's show, I think we'll try and get some input from Dr. Andy about this matter. And again, uh, recommend I've heard him do this, and we should do this too. Uh, recommend how you, the computer user, might safeguard yourself against such catastrophes. Of course, this might be a good point to, to mention that the uh, views expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the management of kdvs the Regents of the university of california or any of our commercial sponsors i don't know whether any of you caught our tuesday program here a special edition of stop making sense or stop making sense meets radio parallax or w- whatever exactly it was i was ably assisted by our, our intern. Craig Broskow, we talked to Mike Madison, the local farmer who uh, lives between Winters and and Davis, talking about urban sprawl and some of what's going on out there. There are rapidly uh, disappearing farmland in what is the world's most productive agricultural area, it's something that I think should be raising eyebrows everywhere. We would refer you to an old copy here of UC Davis Magazine I'm looking at, which talks about how almost two cities' worth of agricultural land is being developed each year in California, and it was noted alarmingly, it's some of our best farmland. What, what astounds me in talking to, uh, to uh, Mike Madison is that uh, this, is just, this is not on the radar of people. Uh, I mean, it, it gets mentioned here and there, but uh, people are sort of blandly talking about putting millions of people in California, 7 million more people uh, in the next few years, who, let's face it, are gonna go into this valley. They're not gonna go into the coast, they're not gonna go into the Bay Area, they're not gonna go into LA, they're gonna go here in the Central Valley. And uh, someone needs to stop, consider that, take a look at our air quality, which we were mentioning earlier in the program, and say, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute. Uh, You know, We don't wanna be living like uh, like it's LA during a smog alert uh, throughout our summers here in the valley now, do we? And, uh, you know, if we're not going to see that, then someone's got to raise the issue of how we can keep people living in other fine states like Iowa and Nebraska and Missouri and what have you. And instead of moving to California in mass, which has been a, a huge migratory pattern now for a couple of generations, it cannot go on forever. Something that might prove discouraging to uh, people that want to move to California might be this issue of uh, West Nile virus. I'm looking at an old article here of California Wild, which is the magazine put out by the California Academy of Sciences, one of uh, one of the finest institutions I can think of here in Northern California. Uh, having grown up uh, visiting the Steinhardt Aquarium and, and various facilities there in Golden Gate Park, those are being renovated, and we're looking forward to... Uh, To uh, to to touring them when uh, when they reopen I guess it's I guess it's next year and we'll 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 talk about that for you on this show, Um, but I noted in the California Wild Fall 2004 um, issue, looking forward to what of course has become reality now this summer and and the issue of West Nile virus, um, they noted that the risk to humans is real but not devastating. Most people exposed to the virus never know it. This is something we should probably stress on this show most people exposed to West Nile virus never know it a small percentage suffer a flu-like symptom or muscle paralysis but fewer than 1% of infected humans die from encephalitis or meningitis these, uh, of course, uh, these deadly cases usually involve the elderly or immunologically suppressed, which is not to downplay the fact that there, you know, is no danger. There is some danger here, but chances are, if you contract this virus, you're not even going to know it. It so happens that West Nile seems to have a, uh, a fatal effect on uh, numerous birds, and uh, it's been noted that when you see crows dying, that's a bad sign. In fact, the, the article was titled, A Murder of Crows. My neighbor Amy uh, takes uh, morning walks and she reported to me with uh, uh, some concern, I think legitimate concern last week, that she noticed on her walks a dead crow and three, three dead Blue Jays. Blue Jays, of course, are in the Raven family. So my suspicion is that, uh, yes, West Nile is probably in, in my neighborhood and, and yours as well here in uh, Yolo, Sacramento counties and, and, and numerous, uh, numerous adjoining areas. But again, um, the chances are, even if you are exposed to it, you are, you know, you're not going to die from this. And also, again, we'll, we'll be talking with uh, some local health experts about this in, in the weeks to come. All right, last couple items. Uh, I was tearing apart some old magazines I'd found stuck behind the door where I'd put them, you know, a decade ago, and was reflecting on the fact that uh, one of the articles, Discover Magazine, September 1990, was pinpointing where the asteroid that struck the Earth 63 million years ago must have hit based on evidence they were finding in geology, evidence of wave-deposited boulders and deposits of glassy rock, known as tektites were suggesting that it might have hit in the Caribbean. Of course, in in subsequent years, they discovered the smoking gun crater of Chicxulub on the Yucatan Peninsula, indicating that uh, this supposition was correct. I thought it was rather cool to see how science does inch forward, uh, sometimes making one good guess after the other till something is confirmed. And this is another example of that. Kind of cool. And last item of the day. It was noted uh, also from the same uh, 1990 old Discover Magazine, that in 1872, typewriters were so sluggish that they jammed easily. So, to slow typists down, the keyboard was constructed to be cumbersome. This, of course, is our QWERTY keyboard we're all familiar with. They noted that other people came along subsequently, particularly a man named Anton Dvorak in 1936, who put together a keyboard that's much easier to use. I thought uh, back in 1990, this was good. I wouldn't bother to learn to type on a QWERTY keyboard because Dvorak keyboards would come along, and that's where I would learn to type. Well, I haven't seen any Dvorak keyboards in the the stores, I'm still waiting for that, and uh, unfortunately I still can't type. So that's my excuse, and I'm going to try and stick to that story. As soon as the Dvoraks are available, I will learn how to type properly. Our thanks to Cornell astronomer Steve Squires, principal investigator of the Mars Exploration Rover Missions, and we recommend his book to you, Roving Mars, Spirit, Opportunity, and the Exploration of the Red Planet. Tune in next week when we'll be talking to Joe Mealy, producer and director of the documentary film Bush's Brain. We hope also to be joined by comedian Fred Willard, he of This Is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Stay tuned now for Todd, and we'll see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock.
1: Only trouble is, whiz, I'm dreaming. i wow.